two is where we will be in a few minutes. We'll take a couple of minutes to get there. Seems like the last thing I remember is that we were having commencement exercises and now we're having vacation Bible school and wow. Well, let's pray and we'll turn our attention to the subject matter this morning. Father, please help us and Lord, I pray that we would desire above all things to be in obedience to the Bible, whatever label that ends up being attached to us. And so we pray for grace and wisdom and understanding and insight into your word. I pray your blessing upon the lives of these people, that we would serve you faithfully, and we pray then for your help to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So the subject matter this morning is liberty of conscience, Uh, liberty of conscience. And uh, this is something that had been on my radar, but I, I thought in light of last Sunday's lesson and some of the conversations that I've had in light of that, that this is an appropriate time to introduce it. Uh, Christianity, of course, um, was first viewed as a sect within the practice of Judaism. Uh, That was how it was viewed by the Romans, at least, officially. Um, And then, as the division with between Jews and Christians became more obvious and more evident, it was viewed as a renegade movement of rebellion within the Roman Empire, um, which brought about the persecutions. You know that there were ten distinct waves of persecution under the Roman Empire. In AD 311, the Emperor Galerius granted it legal standing, Um, which brought Christianity then into the realm of approved religions. I mean, that's the point of it, right? We have have all these deities that we worship within the Roman Empire. These are Roman deities, and and we have approved Roman religious practices and Roman denominations, so to speak, and Galerius... And, and, you know, without getting into all the history, and this is far from my area of historical expertise... Um, most of these decisions, folks, were not theologically driven. They were politically driven, right? We're, we're going to recover the Roman Empire by persecuting Christians. Well, that didn't work, and, and all that's happening now is the resistance of Christianity is ramping up. Okay, let's, let's legalize Christianity, and let's burst that bubble and ease that pressure. Um, we're all familiar that... Um, I'm sorry, it was tolerated by Galerius. It was legalized by Constantine with the Edict of Milan in AD 313, who, of course, comes down to us as possibly the first Christian emperor. And then under Theodosius, the first in AD 380 with the Edict of Thessalonica, it is the only legalized religion of the Roman Empire. And and by that time, we're talking about primarily the, well, we're talking about the Roman Empire, Theodosius. The first, so there's a trajectory to the existence of Christianity from this really nondescript movement of the apostles meeting behind closed doors to stay away from the eyes of the Jews and the Romans, 
into essentially conquering the, the then known Western world, um, at least in name. Um, and so for the next thousand plus years, uh, <clears throat> what we know as Roman Catholicism is the only official legal religion of Europe. And <clears throat> if you're familiar with, with that period of history, medieval history, you know then, of course, that there are all kinds of political, religious tensions and conflicts that fell to that. Kings were power brokers, popes were power brokers, the church owned land in virtually every country, and the relationship was sometimes tense. And then, of course, Martin Luther um, in, AD, in 1517 um, nails his 95 theses to the wall on the church door at Wittenberg, which, which basically is the equivalent, you know, of, of going on Twitter and listing your 95 grievances against the church. And the next thing you know, the world's on fire. And what we know is the Protestant Reformation <clears throat> is born. Uh, <clears throat> this opened the door for a flood of anti-Roman church movements that were themselves frequently contested you know, disagreed. You know, you had the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and uh, the Anabaptists and, and those different types of groups. Um, but most people in that period in time agreed that the church and state were indivisible. That the church and state were indivisible. That some form of Christianity was going to be the only legalized and in some cases tolerated religion in the world or, I mean, in that country or within that realm. And so over the course of time, and again, this is as much historical as it is religious in nature, to become, to be French meant to be Roman Catholic. And Louis XIV was instrumental in expelling the Protestant Frenchmen from France because to be France is to be Roman Catholic. And Ferdinand and Isabella were instrumental in expelling non-Catholics from Spain because to be Spanish is to be Catholic. And, of course, we all know the story of Henry VIII and his desire to get a divorce and his split from Roman Catholic Church. And so to be, be English meant to be Protestant, specifically to be Anglican. And countries were identified by their nationality, English, French, Spanish, uh, as much as they were by their religious affiliation. And then, of course, that contributed to all kinds of wars along there. <clears throat> that was the way that the Western world pretty much operated. Very simplistic, you know that. But my point is not to try and teach medieval history. My point is to make this point. That was not Baptists, not ever. That was not Baptists, not ever. And so Baptists very frequently found themselves being persecuted by whatever form of Christianity was in power at the time. Uh, the colony of Virginia actually whipped a Baptist pastor one time because of his nonconformity. Because Virginia was an Anglican colony. Baptists have historically 
This has been part and parcel to use modern language. This has been part of our DNA. And, and let me just stop here and address this, okay? Because, you know, in our world, there, there are more than a couple of people who will point out to you that John the Baptist was a Baptist and Paul was a Baptist and therefore we're Baptists. And, and we are to be imitators of Paul and to a lesser extent imitators of John because John was not really a New Testament writer and a New Testament figure. We are to be like them, but, but folks, you just cannot make the case that Paul was denominationally a Baptist. It is an argument that would have been lost on him. Historically, the Baptist denomination, which I will point out at the end, is to be distinguished uh, from the Anabaptist movement. Uh, Baptists as a, as a denomination go back into the, into the 1600s. And... Uh, <clears throat> We were considered, and for the most part have always been considered, some form of religious radical, not simply because we insisted upon baptism of people after a profession of faith. I mean, the whole Anabaptist is the idea of rebaptizing, and we rejected infant baptism, and that brought us all kinds of grief. But we also rejected categorically the idea of a state or governing religion that brought everybody under its wings and everybody under its shadows. That was to be, that's part of what it is to be a Baptist, folks, is, is this, we'll get to this, but, but in, in the early days to go back four or five hundred years to be a Baptist was something that you embraced at great peril. You were an outcast, and part of your argument was liberty of conscience, which goes along with, you know, the, the priesthood of the believer. Um, if you look at your outline, so one early American champion of liberty of conscience was Roger Williams. And Roger Williams wasn't perfect, and he wasn't a lifelong Baptist, and there are things about Roger Williams with whom we would take exception. But I put some of these things in early. He was born in England in 1603, died in Rhode Island in 1683. He established Providence Plantations, which would become, of course, Providence, Rhode Island, as a haven of freedom for religious conscience. And Roger Williams really was a radical. He argued that people of almost any religious persuasion, even if they be Jews or Buddhists or Muslims, could establish a fair and civil government. In 1638, he established the first Baptist church in America, and again, part, you know, we want to be very careful because he was not a lifelong Baptist and it wasn't very long until he wasn't a Baptist at all because he, Roger Williams had some issues with denominational governance in a larger scale. In 1644, he wrote the book called The Bloody Tenant of Persecution for Cause of Conscience discussed in a conference between truth and peace. You can find it in PDF form on the internet if you want to read it, I think if I recall, it's about 250 pages long. It was called in its day a pamphlet. A pamphlet. 250 page long pamphlet. And tenant has the idea, the best that I can tell, of just that, of being a tenant. The occupation of persecution for cause of conscience. Among the arguments that Roger Williams made were 
for instance, Jesus permitted the wheat and tares to stay together in Matthew 13, 30 through 38. One of the kingdom parables. And another point that he made was that Jesus refused the request from James and John to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did upon those who did not believe. Now we know, folks, that most colonies in Roger Williams' days, and he's at the very early part of the colonial movement, had established religions. This is something that we've not yet talked about when we're having a conversation about re-Christianizing America is what form of re-Christianization will we have? If we could re-Christianize America, what would that look like? What would the practice of that actually look like? And that brings me then to this in your outline, that the Bible takes human conscience seriously. In other words, what's the Baptist insistence upon the right of a human being to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience? Were they just being belligerent and difficult? I mean, look how simple this is. But the government legalizes, authorizes, and in, in indirectly through the form of taxation supports a territorial religion. And everybody will observe that religion. Now, depending upon where you lived, and of course I'm speaking very narrowly with reference to the American colonies because we're Americans and this is what we keep talking about is our constitution and, and our founding fathers. You might have the liberty to be a different religion. So if your colony was, for instance, Anglican, it may not be a crime to be a Baptist. Or if your colony was congregational, it may not be a crime to be a Baptist. But there was almost certainly a price that you paid for being a Baptist in that you might have the freedom to be a Baptist, but because you're not of the official religion, you have no right to vote. Or you have no right to hold legal office. If you want, if you want to get elected to any political office, you will be a part of the officially mandated religion. That was the way that it operated. As one of my history professors at UNO pointed out, to the Puritans, religious freedom meant to be the religion that we are. That's your religious freedom. You can be the religion that we are. So let's just take a couple of moments and talk about this. Is liberty of conscience a really big deal? And to whom is it a big deal? And folks, I would make the argument that liberty of conscience is a really big deal to God. To God. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 15. Well, let's start in verse number 14. We know that Paul is making an argument here in Romans 2 and 3 about the universal condemnation of humanity. that all people are guilty and condemned before God. It's easy enough to make the the case that a Jew is condemned before God because he has God's word. 
He is a covenant. He is a member of the covenant community. And he has been taught God's word from his infancy or her infancy. And so it's easy enough to make the case that these people are under God's judgment and condemnation because they know what God has said. But that's just a very minuscule portion of humanity. What about everybody else? Verse number 14. For when the Gentiles have not, which, which have not the law, they don't have God's word. When the Gentiles, which don't have God's word, do by nature the things contained in the law. It is, it is human nature, folks. I mean, let's just, right, let's just talk about the goofiness of our world in the transgender movement. Right? These people are making moral arguments for what they do. That it is only right that they get to make these choices. And that it is wrong for anybody to make those choices. Where in the world, right? I'm not talking about their view of right and wrong. Where in the world does the human desire for right and wrong to exist even come from? Evolution? Did at some point in time of the progression of us going from being rocks to single-cell creatures, to complex creatures, to the apes and the great apes into human beings, at what point in time did we develop this notion that there is right and wrong in the world? The animal kingdom knows no right and wrong. So back to verse 14, when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law... These having not the law are a law unto themselves. And so, folks, again, right, we are living in a world that is governed by laws. Laws that are, in many instances, radically contrary to what we would understand laws to be. But laws, nevertheless, because laws originate in the absence of the word of God in the human heart. Verse number 15, to this end, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. So that you have this fascinating, God is making this fascinating case that the Jews have the word of God in black and white and everybody else at some level has the word of God embedded in their being. The law of God written in their heart. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So although, because, right, because the world is a fallen place and men are fundamentally fallen and evil, nevertheless, folks, the basic operating system is in place, that men have a sense of right and wrong that has come to them because they are God's creatures made in his image. They're completely distorted. And by the way, apart from God's gracious influence us, we would be just as distorted. They are completely distorted about what right and wrong actually are. But they are adamant that right and wrong does exist. The word conscience on your outline means to see with. That's what the word is, to see with. 
to have knowledge with. It is what God has given us to perceive and evaluate right and wrong and good and evil. Right, so let's, let's go back to last week's lesson. Right? Should an individual support a political party when the church probably wouldn't do it? What are we doing? We're having a conversation about the right and wrongness of that action. And we're bringing all kinds of Bible verses and other principles to bear. I don't mean sinful principles. Historical principles to bear to try and answer that question. How can we do that? Because we have a conscience. We have something that can see, that can reason with itself and talk to itself about the concept of right and wrong and try to evaluate things on the basis of whether something is right or wrong. And many things in this world, folks, really fall to the level of human conscience as to whether or not they should be done. And God is very insistent on that. Romans chapter 13, a passage that we perhaps will give some deeper attention to. Paul here is making the argument for submission to civil governments and what the limits of that are is, and if there are any limits is one of the reasons we might consider it. So let's just jump down to the summary. Verse number five, wherefore ye must needs be subject. You have to be in submission to civil government. Now again, folks, I'm just setting aside for a moment because I know that some of you are aware of this and are thinking about this. What if it's an illegal, illegitimate government? Do you have to be subject then? But, but let's just set that aside for a moment. Okay? The fundamental principle that Paul is arguing is that you have to be submitted to civil governments. And you have to do that for two reasons, Romans 13.5. Number one, because you don't want God mad at you. For wrath's sake. And also for conscience sake. If I can put it this way, not only do you not want God mad at you, you don't want yourself mad at you. And we all know what it is, folks, to be mad at ourselves because our conscience is having a conversation about what we did do that we shouldn't have done or what we didn't do that we should have done. So here are the two, right here are two of the summary statements, and and then Paul goes on, by the way, to take it just simply out of that realm of I don't want to say hypothetical because God's anger is very real, but right into the, into the realm of the mind, I don't want God mad at me and I don't want to be mad at myself. And by the way, pay your taxes. Right? So there's a tangible to it as well, not just a mental component to it. Conscience governs how we treat other people. This is a large part of the entire framework of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. In which God insists that my conscience have some level of sensitivity to your conscience. And again, without going back and visiting us, some people, because of the weakness of their conscience, are combative about certain things 
And God doesn't let us go there. The, the church is not the victim to the weakest conscience. Somebody's going to have, I mean, whatever the issue might be, folks, somebody's going to have the weakest conscience. That's not what Paul is arguing. Paul is arguing, First Corinthians, or actually Romans chapter 14, him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputation. Weak consciences are welcomed unless they want to be the governing conscience, and then they're not. But God commands me to be sensitive to the consciences of other people and to have my decisions not simply made upon my conscience but with attentiveness to the conscience of others because it is a very serious thing. Right? If you wound a weak brother's conscience, you sin. 1 Corinthians 8. So this idea, folks, of, of the liberty of conscience is a very serious matter to the Lord. It is, it is something that God has given to us that is his gift to humanity that enables us to function with a, with a sense of right and wrong before him. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse number 1. Therefore, seeing we we have this ministry... As we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hinted things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul viewed himself as appealing to people's consciences, as validating himself, his ministry, to their consciences. And, and how did he do this? By dealing faithfully and truthfully with the Bible. Not handling the word of God deceitfully. Not manipulating the text of scripture. To every man's conscience in the sight of God. As, as an inside man speaking to inside men in the sight of the all-seeing God, I think is what Paul is getting at. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's start in verse number 6 of Hebrews 9. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, 
which he offered for himself and for the heirs of his people, of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way of the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. While as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And of course, we know, folks, that Christ's death accomplished in reality and substantively what the Old Testament system never could. But notice the appeal to the conscience. All of the Old Testament practices imposed upon people could never really absolve their consciences, but Christ did. Christ's work did. Which, which, you know, and we've not terribly recent, too long ago, worked through our way through the book of Hebrews, right? But, but, but I would just pose this question in light of what the writer says here. If the blood of Christ is not applied to that person on behalf of that person's sins, where does that leave their conscience? If a clear conscience can only be had by understanding and accepting the work of Christ in your behalf, where is the conscience of a man? It is left unregenerated. Or just over a page or two to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, right, and, and this is not intended to be an in-depth exposition of the human conscience, which is, right, which is treated as functioning but is never defined apart from the fact that we know that the words means to see with to have the knowledge of, the ability to perceive. But New Testament Christianity is very much a Christianity of the human conscience. And it is, right, the, the theory is, right? I mean, if, if you go back, folks, the th- part of the theory of the Old Testament is because we cannot substantially r- improve the human conscience, we impose external mandates upon the people. Don't eat this. Don't drink this. Do this. But under the new covenant, folks, it's not the theory, it's the reality. Is that the Spirit of God himself comes in to reside in a person and regenerates that person's conscience so that the new believer is walking in newness of life, oriented truly towards God. 
This is, this is the New Testament paradigm. And this is just one of the reasons, folks, to go back to your, to your outline, why Baptists have been the historical champions of the separation of church and state. To ask a Baptist about the relationship to church, between church and state is to ask a, a theological question. One of the questions, folks, that, that, that is addressed at the very beginning of our, this, I don't know that I addressed it, but it was one of the questions that came up at the very beginning of this series on civics is this. Do we have the right to impose biblical morality on unbelieving people? The Baptist answer is no. No. The Baptist answer is not only do we not have the right, we don't have the ability or the capacity. Men relate to God on the basis of a biblically informed conscience. That's the Baptist position. That's, That's part of what it is to be a Baptist, folks. I mean, that's just in theory, part of what it is to be a Baptist. And that brings me to number five, that there are certainly then problems that arise from that position, aren't there? And there are very real, there's one overarching problem with reference to our study. And that is, if you don't feel that you can compel men to worship apart from the conviction of their own conscience, you might find yourself living in a world where men without conscience govern you. That's a problem, isn't it? And let me just, let me just inject this in here. One of the things, I I just made reference to the fact that that Baptists are in some ways similar to and akin to the Anabaptists. But I would confine that pretty much to our insistence upon baptism by immersion upon a profession of faith and really in very few other ways. Anabaptists tend, this is a separate subject, Anabaptists tended to be in part because of the conscience and their view of government, tended to be very um, passive. Um, So so they would historically not participate in any war. Um, And they also tended to be, like the Mennonites and the Hutterites, they tended to be very reclusive, um, taking us back to Niebuhr's first position of withdrawal from society. Let me quote here Kevin Bowder. Um, who wrote a really good article called The Baptist Paradox. The separation of church and state does not imply the separation of church saints from the public square. Christian individuals can and should participate in the whole social order, including agriculture, manufacturing, commerce, education, the arts, and even politics and jurisprudence. I think obviously Dr. Bowder and I would perhaps not see eye to eye on the extent of that 
participation. They should bring their Christian definitions and perspectives into the public square with them. Whenever and wherever they can, they apply the Christian perspectives to the full-orbed business of life. I do not fundamentally disagree with that. I do not believe that to be a Baptist is to be a political recluse or a societal recluse. But certainly, folks, our unwillingness within the historic Baptist tradition to try and force a religious viewpoint upon people means one of two things. Either that you completely withdraw from civilization or you brace yourself to live in a civilization that has people who are not going to agree with you and potentially even take out their hostility against you. Now, again, as a Baptist, I would argue that is exactly what Jesus taught. D.A. Carson has a book in which he is interacting with Niebuhr's book. Uh, D.A. Carson is a, I think he's retired now, but taught Bible at, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the seminary, north of Chicago for many years. Just brilliant and, and 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 a really good guy. And he makes reference to a man who said to him, the Quran makes no, it gives no guidance for Islam to live in a minority position in the world. Islam must dominate. But the Bible gives no guidance for how to dominate in the world. It treats all of its readers as minorities. And, you know, that's probably, you know, there are some issues there, but that's not a bad generalization of how we view things. I'm just going to mention this, by the way, folks, right? Because I I have ambitions to be a real Baptist. Uh, We we really struggle to to bring the the whole realm of liberty of conscience into the walls of an assembly. You know, it's it's one thing to, to, to write to a politician and say, I have liberty of conscience to be a Baptist, leave me alone. But Within our own walls, those are those are graces we frequently do not feel other people get to have, right? You know, in in Westwood Heights Baptist Church, these are the extents of the liberties that you may enjoy. I think that's a real problem. I'll tackle that in more in more depth at a at a future time. Back to your outline, number what one in mind is number six, and I don't remember how it is for you, right? Finally, I I I feel like I have an obligation to address this. Right? It can be argued that true liberty of conscience is not at odds with the idea of Christian nationalism. It can be argued that true liberty of conscience is not at odds with the eyes of Christian nationalism. Right? We, just, we, just, we just want the Bible to govern morals and then right? and then, then you can right? we just want everybody to be a Christian. We just want everybody to be a Christian. Doug Wilson has a book to that end called Mere Christendom. Right? We just we know what the Western world did in the Middle Ages. They went to extremes. We don't need to go to that extreme. We just we just want everybody to be Christian. And we want the law of God to be the moral basis. Of government and and I, I listen. I, I would rather live in that world than than any other. 
So you can make the argument, folks, that what I'm arguing, the Baptist position for liberty of conscience is not, uh, not at odds with the idea of Christian nationalism, of bringing the, the Constitution back to where it was, of bringing law and order back to where they were, and not endeavor to mandate what practice, what specific practice that would be. I would just ask you this question. Do you really trust people that much? I mean, would we really, even, even, a, even a Bible-believing guy, Right? If, if he just had, if I had, if I had all the power in my hand, could I really be trusted not to abuse it? You know, folks, the history of humanity doesn't speak well about us. And doing things for the good of other people is one of the greatest ways that politicians have ever used to take control. We're doing that. We're doing this for your good. We're just we're just doing this for your good. So, in other words, I, you know, I would just ask, why would I presume if we could just return to mere Christendom? Why would I presume that at some point in time somebody wouldn't come along? the way the Puritans did, or the Anglicans did, or the Catholics did, and insist that their version of mere Christendom is the only one that will be tolerated. And if you read, folks, if you, if you go in, right, and, and I, I, you know, I could recommend, there's a, a pretty good book called The Anabaptist Story that's pretty good. And there's a pretty good book on religious radicals in Tudor England that, that highlights the relationship between the, <clears throat> the, the Quakers and the Baptists, outcast elements in a society. The history of being a Baptist is we have frequently been persecuted by professingly Christian governments. Not just persecuted by pagans, but persecuted by professing Christians. So, so just to throw out, just right, and I'm just, I'm just dealing in the realm of abstract here. What if we could do this, folks? What if we could, through the political machine that we now have, restore mere Christianity? And ten years down the road, part of that was that you have to have your infant baptized. Where are we then? Where are we then? Would, would you have your infant baptized if the Christian government said you had to? I mean, <clears throat> would you? Where would that leave us? That, that would leave us hopefully where Baptists have historically been in that world, kind of on the outside looking in, oftentimes with a noose around our neck. So I return, right, so, so two things, right, with reference to, to your individual political involvement, I'm going to take the Baptist position 
that this is a matter of liberty of conscience, that you have got to figure out if when the day comes that you're having a conversation with God about that subject, if you can answer it to him. Not to me. But I also return to my original question, folks, which is what has driven me through all this. What, what does God want from us as a church? What, what is our mission? And, and certainly the evangelization of the world and the edification of saints. But does that translate into, but does, does the third part of that become the implementation of some kind of a Christian state? And I just, I don't think that it does. And, and if I could put it this way, folks, I think that if the gospel were that successful, you could make the argument it would become unnecessary. If the gospel really triumphed, would it be, would it be necessary? Okay, 1045, I'm going to stop there, as always. And I, I say this now even more sensitively after my off-the-wall comment Wednesday night. I welcome your questions and your feedback and your, your input to help me think through this and, and to kind of know how to address it. So, so, so don't, don't, don't stop doing that.